Welcome to CYC Podcast Discussions on Child and Youth Care. I'm Wolfgang Vashaw. Last month, I spoke with a couple of people who helped create the research-based audio dramas called Refiled, which you can find at www.refiled.ca. Now, that project was with child and youth care practitioners who had lived in residential care as children and youth and are now working with young people. Today, I'm extending the conversation about people who have residential placement experience, but I'm shifting the focus onto education. The statistics for young people who have lived in placement, child welfare, child protection, the statistics for them in education are not great. So for example, in Ontario where I live, a 2016 study found that only 44% of people in or from care graduated high school. And of that 44%, only 5% will graduate from a post-secondary institution, college or university. So one of the many, many, many questions this raises for me is, how can academic institutions support those from care to succeed in school? And as an educator, this is particularly relevant to me because I teach students every year who have care experience or who are currently transitioning out of care. So today I intend to start answering that question. What can I do? What can educators do? no matter what program they're teaching in, to support people from the care system. And I'm going to focus in particular on higher education. My guest today is Sean Elliott, who has just finished a wonderful research project with students who have placement care experience and who have graduated from college or university. I've heard Sean speak. We've had several conversations. His research is really enlightening. And I'm looking forward to our conversation. So welcome, Sean, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Wolfgang. To begin, just to orient our listeners, could you introduce yourself as it relates to this research project that you did? I am a foster care alumni myself. I've graduated with a university degree in human services. Um, a graduate certificate in career counseling, and I'm uh, presently completing my master's degree at Wilfrid Laurier University. Coming from that lived experience, I then ended up pursuing my career, which led me into social services, employment uh, and career services, and nonprofit community development work. So over my career, I've worked in a variety of roles. I've worked as a counselor, an employment uh, recruiter, an administrator of an outreach center, minister, a career counselor, a team leader, an agency director of a residential treatment center for troubled youth, a co-op consultant, an international experience consultant, and an employer relations consultant. And I now work as the regional associate director with uh, Seawell Canada for Central Region. And so in that role, I actually assist colleges and universities to develop, to develop innovative work integrated learning projects uh, in their academic uh, programs. 
And I'm, I'm actually proud to say that <laughs> my wife <laughs> has stayed with me for over 30 years, uh, despite the odds that um, <laughs> many foster care alumni are not able to sustain a successful marriage <laughs> or will often sabotage their close relationships. And I have two amazing adult daughters, one son-in-law, to say one heart-crushing granddaughter. And when she says, Grandpa, I just stop everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so whoever said having children would lead into such treasure. So that's just a little bit about myself. That's amazing. I was going to say, how old are you? 112 with that, <laughs> the amount of things that you've done, Sean. I'm like, you're looking, you're looking good for somebody who is one of the oldest people on the planet. <laughs> you have such a range of, of experience and your work has been all over the place, although there certainly has been a theme about helping, helping people. And I'm curious why you decided to embark on this project, specifically looking at post-secondary education, uh, success factors. Why this particular topic of research? You know, that is just a super question. And I think I really want to go back to some of those kind of statistics that you referred to in the beginning, Wolfgang, where less than 44% of the foster youth will complete high school and less than 5% will actually complete post-secondary education. And so for me, it was about looking at how a hidden, underrepresented group in higher education were able to overcome trauma and adversity and and a host of other adversities to complete um, post-secondary education in Ontario. And so for years, child and youth care practitioners, educators, government have been looking at what we refer to as the deficit-based research data mm -hmm. um, that indicates that, you know, foster youth end up homeless or in youth justice or dealing with sexually deviant behavior or struggling with relationships and authority riddled with you know multiple mental disorders illnesses and PTSD and unable to overcome the trauma of the past and so my research was intended to cover literature I actually end up covering over 80 pieces of research literature and some case study interviews to look at the success factors of foster care alumni in post-secondary education trying to look at it more from the lens of how do these people in particular come out ahead? Where, where did they get their sense of resiliency through all this? Amazing. I really appreciate that distinction between that deficit-based because so often that's the narrative we hear, right? We hear about the adversity, the, the, the negative outcomes, the, the difficulties, the challenges, et cetera, et cetera. And so taking it from that, not that that is not crucial and vital and and it often becomes a catalyst for, for potentially for policy change. However, looking at looking at those success factors is a, is a really um, important reframing. So, what were some of the success factors? What were some of the 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 elements that you found in your research? And maybe maybe I should take a step back and and say sort of what was your research process protocol? Because it wasn't just a lit review. It involved conversations as well. So perhaps you could give us a little bit of a breakdown of what your research process was like, and then we can talk about the success factors. I embarked on 
making the proposal, of course, uh, to conduct this academic research through the Research Ethics Board of the university and a quest to really develop some case studies. And part of the, the case study, I guess, motivation was a result of the fact that I found, as well as I think the sector has also discovered that there's really no evidence-based research outcomes. Uh, there's actually a really good uh, report that was done by Dr. Renee Ferguson on hidden among the underrepresented, which kind of uncovered this, as well as there's a white paper report on exploring youth outcomes after uh, aging out of care in 2017. And these documents actually found that there was very little data that actually focused on positive outcomes. We're all reminded about why this is so difficult. And so from all of that, I realized that there were no actual case studies that practitioners, educators, government, child welfare workers could actually point to. And so, you know, I asked the question of a lot of people, and especially for a period of time, I was working with a lot of different entrepreneurs in business. If they were wanting to start up a new line, a new business, a new direction, and try to find out what is successful, they often look at models of success to see what works and what doesn't work. Why can't we do the same thing? Why doesn't our government, why don't we do the same with child welfare workers? Why don't we look at the success factors? So I felt that by being able to uncover some uh, case studies with people that had gone through that, that it would actually help us to come up with some benchmarks to be able to come back and say, okay, well, here's some things that we can look at. After conducting pretty extensive uh, literature review to create that foundation, I then embarked into some semi-structured interviews to comprise the case studies that I was conducting. I actually went a little bit further. We did nine of those conversations in, in those interviews to look at how had they succeeded. And we specifically looked at those who had been in care, from care. Uh, they had been maybe been in group homes. They had been in foster homes. They had been in care some way or another for at least a year. But the majority of them had been in the system for many years they all had gone through educational programs in the province of Ontario. So within the literature review, I mean, we found lots of similar kinds of uh, case studies uh, throughout North America and other parts of the world. But this technically, unless something else is being published right now, as we speak, as far as I know, this, uh, this will be the only case study that exists on students who have succeeded in Ontario. Amazing. But let's start with what allowed these students to succeed. Just so we're clear, when you mean success, all of them graduated of post-secondary. As you and I have spoken about before, many of them actually gone on to complete a second or even more schooling. What did they identify as the factors that helped them graduate? A lot of people would ask, well, how do we define success? You know, it could be a qualitative question around how they got the most out of their education or how they got the most out of life. But really, for the sake of the study, we were looking at those who were successful in actually completing, mm -hmm. completing post-secondary education. Now, there were some 
findings uh, throughout the research that also sort of some secondary findings that looked at even those who struggle with access, access issues like access to education is also a concern. But for the sake of my study, I was looking at those who had actually completed. And, and it was interesting because out of the nine interviews I conducted, there was actually a number of them that had actually completed multiple credentials in post-secondary education. That was interesting. But the top five findings that, that came out of the study start off with first caring and coaching adults. Well, all of the participants talked about how it was so important. This was the top factor mm. that the participants credited for their success in higher education. So it, it was caring teachers, professors, foster parents, social workers, uh, church friends, non-biological parents that demonstrated coaching. Now, when I say non-biological parents, there's a number of the participants that describe maybe their, you know, something like their boyfriend's parents or their girlfriend's parents or so parents that had some kind of involvement in their lives, but said, no, I want to coach you. I want to help you get through this. So that was the top thing that they credited for their success in higher education. And I think for all of us, you know, we, we forget just how important that can be uh, mm -hmm. in helping someone through something. The second well, it's, thing it's was this idea is that, you know, having having that even just one single caring adult can, can make a huge difference. And when that adult also has the skills to be able to coach somebody, you know, going back to this idea of models, if people do not know how to be successful in post-secondary, it's, it's much harder to be successful, much harder to graduate. And so having people to say, hey, this is this is how you can do it and helping them along. And, yes, and that's I, why I wanted to couple couple those words together, mm -hmm. caring and coaching, because there's a lot of people who may care, but do they take the extra step to actually coach mm -hmm. someone? Yeah. So in a lot of cases, I had to say, I heard examples of how people in the educational system just took a little bit of an extra effort and time to try and coach someone along the way. You know, maybe it's even taking one of them home uh, during a school break, you know, something like that just made the world of difference. Yeah. yeah. The second thing that came out was this concept of resistance. And a lot of people go resistance. And it wasn't a rebellion, but it was more of a resistance to the negative stereotype mm. that's out there. The negative stereotype of perhaps, you know, foster care alumni, oh, well, they're not going to make it. Look at the stats. They never succeed. So the people who were successful in our study actually said, no, we had to really fight against that. Not only that, not only the uh, stereotype of the failure, uh, you know, that, that others were expecting, but also the negative stereotype of their biological parents and saying, well, I don't want to become like them. There was also a resistance to the stigma of just a feeling of insignificance and also to the feeling of othering, where you're made to feel like you're somebody other than the rest of the crowd. And so this feeling of resistance that came out in so many different ways was the second reason why participants felt that they were able to succeed. They didn't just accept the norm that was forecasted for them, but they resisted it in order to succeed. One of the things I love about 
this idea of resistance is that so often in the social services resistance is framed as a negative right oh that 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 child's resistant or that family's resistant right and it's it's always positioned as or it's frequently positioned as as a, a negative attribute and what i'm hearing you say is that ability to say no right that ability yeah. to say actually i'm not going to accept what you are telling me because you know consciously or not i think i think a lot of people are you know maybe steered away oh you know university is really hard you know it's you know why don't you go and do this and then that and the capacity to to challenge that um i think is uh is something that you know those of us who work in the field we spend a lot of time trying to help children become compliant and maybe we should spend a little bit more time helping them find when it's right to resist. And yeah, yeah. I, I, I recall one participant actually saying that, you know, when she was struggling through some issues in, in school, in some cases, people almost thought that she was a bit of a, excuse me, the language, but a badass. Mm -hmm. And yet when she realized that she could actually use her resistance for good to succeed, that something clicked in her. It was, mm. you know, a fork in the road. And she realized, hey, this is maybe how it could actually get through. And I could prove everyone wrong that I'm actually going to be successful. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. So the, the third the third factor that came out in success was the sense of determination. And mm. you can kind of hear a little bit of that sort of flowing out from what we just talked about. But in, in many cases, participants described how their determination to succeed was so important that it wasn't like it was an option. So success was not optional, <laughs> but it was mandatory if they were ever going to get past things. And a few of them, you know, basically said, you know, I had to do this come hell or high water. Like there was no other option because <laughs> I couldn't go back to where I had come from. The fourth factor was experience. Just to kind of explain what what many of them meant by this, they felt that due to the lack of the uh, sense of family and the privilege of family, they, you know, a lot of workers refer to it as family privilege because they lack that and the participants necessity to survive, they lacked experience to understand what actually works in, in pursuing a career or what actually works in higher education and what doesn't. However, it's interesting when they finally got to experience even just a slight taste. So some of the participants described programs where maybe they were exposed in some abbreviated form or another of post-secondary education. It helped them to understand, hey, there's a different life here. So that really came out when it was compared to their non-foster care peers, the little bit that they did get was so important. It really helped them to move forward. And then the other aspect that came out about experience is that some of them actually referred to the importance of experiential learning mm -hmm. in college and university. And it was something that participants indicated helped them to succeed within their programs. And it was something also that they wish they could have had more of because it helped level the playing field for them and maybe their non-foster care peers. Nice. 
Nice. Yeah, the, the idea of having those models, being able to see, um, being able to draw on other people's experience, and then being able to actually do the work, right? A lot of youth in this situation will come from pretty, you know, poverty kinds of positions. And so to have a program in education where they can get some work experience and get paid for it was something that was helpful. The fifth finding in terms of a success factor was this sense of career clarity. And it was a bit of a, a dilemma, a catch-22, because in some cases, they would describe the fact that it was so difficult. It was so difficult for them to even think about a career or think about education when all they were trying to do was merely to survive and get through the trauma and the adversity of life. But the more that foster youth participants did obtain clarity, some kind of clarity on their career prospects, the more it truly impacted their success. Even with less career planning support than their non-foster youth peers, the little they were able to obtain provided an immense amount of motivation to succeed. There were some implications that I think came out of that, but those were the top five findings. I mean, those, those are so, so insightful, this idea of care coaching, resistance, determination, experience, and career clarity. Did you find any patterns in the, I mean, it's a small sample side of, of, of nine and you were doing case studies, you weren't, you weren't doing, you know, huge quantitative data sets, but did you find any patterns in the career direction that they went into? No, not not no. really. Yeah. Um, yeah. It is kind of interesting that the majority of them are in, I guess, what we would call helping, helping mm -hmm. kind of mm -hmm. uh, careers. I think in a in a lot of cases they try different fields, but it wasn't something that jumped out at at me. Nope. Yeah, that, that's a good question, and it could be something that we could go back to later. I do recall one story with a participant that said he was actually trying to pursue, you know, something within kind of our field, like social work or, mm -hmm. you know, helping uh, youth out. And the guidance counselor uh, pulled him aside and said, okay, well, you know what, uh, let me give you a scenario. What if, you know, someone came to you, a young man came to you and said that they had been hurt by their, by their father and they had been hit by their father. How would you handle that? And he said, well, I, I basically tell him, hit him back, go for it, <laughs> you know, deal with it. <laughs> and he said the, the guidance counselor kind of used it against him and said, mm. well, you see, that's exactly why you can't go into this type of work. And he said it only further created more of a stigma around how he wasn't going to be successful. Right. So it actually became a source for him to try and look at other career choices from there. Time is, is clipping along as it does when we have such fascinating conversations with people on this, on this podcast. You identified multiple implications. You identified actually 10 different implications for educators. This isn't published yet, but you will be, you know, you're looking at publishing and I, I really, really encourage you and, and to do that. Because I think this is super important information that you've, that, that you've, brought forth. But what, what would you say are some of the you know, top two or three implications for post-secondary, for colleges, for universities in supporting people 
to be successful? What what do we, I as an educator, need to do, or the the college that I work for need to do to help support folks? I could wrap a few of the implications together mm-hmm. here in that question, Wolfgang. And you know, as as someone that works in the higher educational system uh, in in Canada as well, I I see it from that perspective and. You know, I think giving giving foster youth and uh, and uh, alumni from in care an opportunity to actually identify themselves is is pretty startling for us as educators to think mm. that they would actually want to be identified. <laughs> but if we can do it in such a way that it's confidential and it's in such a way that we, we they know or feel that they're going to be supported and helped in in going forward, they want to be identified they feel in a sense that it's a duty of theirs to be able to speak up and so there's a sense of one of the implications was to allow foster care alumni to actually have a voice Mm. and i heard from many of them who have had opportunities to participate in advocacy and support groups either in their institution or outside that and they even said i feel like i found my tribe like I found my people. This is how they communicated. And one person even came back to me after I said, thank you for her valuable time and sharing with me. And she says, what are you talking about? She goes, this is our duty. <laughs> so the sense of voice that, you know, they need to have is so important. And so when we look at education, educational institutions offering tuition waiver supports, is a great way. And then when that happens, and if there's a campus support initiative, give foster youth an opportunity to be part of that campus support, that coaching, you know, get them to share how they were successful with others that are coming along the way. I kind of wrapped a few implications together in that statement. The, The other one that kind of jumps out at me that I might want to focus on is this whole concept of aging out and readiness mm-hmm. and you know government up to this last year or two before covid you know foster youth had to get out by 18 or else not if they're ready and you think about it most young people as they leave the home nest as they leave the family nest as it were it's usually when they're ready mm-hmm. when when both my daughters left they the home to go pursue their career or their their own family. It was based on when they were ready, not a, not a magic uh, age. <laughs> so why can't we do the same for foster youth? And it does have a drastic impact on their ability to succeed in college or, or university. Because if they're not ready and they're going into this situation and there's so much adversity that, and trauma that they're still trying to unpack and work through, you know, where do they go? Where do they go back for help when things don't work out with their landlord? Or now the school has a break, where are they going to go from there? Well, if they've been aged out, there's no place. There's no sort of, you know, nest egg for them to go back to to get that help. And that's where a lot of coaching, caring adults, you know, had a lot of impact in those who were successful, which was a very small minority. Yeah, I think this idea of, of readiness indicators and and identifying you know individualized specific markers for 
particular people as they prepare to leave the residential placement, foster care, child welfare system, how will you know that you're ready? And, and having those conversations with young people and then building that into the plan, I think that this concept has the potential to radically shift how young people leave the care system. I think it's a, it's a concept that if we can make it happen, and I know that people are, Youth in Care Canada's, uh, Connor Lowe's is doing stuff. There's there's a variety of, of, of people, you know, Child Welfare Pack is, is, is advocating for these sorts of things. If we can make this happen, I, I think we will see a profound difference in and all of those deficit-based indicators that you you spoke about before. So um, I'm I'm I was really really happy to to see you address this uh, this particular suggestion when I looked mm -hmm. at your findings. Yeah, you know, like in in youth justice, the workers will look at you know risk factors, mm -hmm. and in other ways, will will you know look at ACE factors. You know, for for those who have mm -hmm. experienced that adverse childhood experiences. Well, why can't we do assessment on readiness determination mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. before we, you know, just push them along? Mm -hmm. And now, fortunately, because of COVID, the silver lining has been that the government has let up a little bit on pushing many foster youth out. Well, if we're seeing that this is actually helping now, why can't we continue that? Absolutely. You know, and, and, Absolutely. Yeah, so. so I think a lot about research and I'm, I'm doing my own research and I'm researching with people from the, the care system. Do you think that there, there was any difference in, in how you conducted the research or how people responded to you as a researcher when you identified to them that you were also in the, from the care system that you had placement experience? Do you think it, it made a difference in the, the way you conducted research or in how people responded to you as a researcher? Yeah, that, that's a really great question. And it's one that I actually wrestled with in even approaching this research study. And perhaps maybe that's why I took uh, so much uh, of my time and career before I finally came to this place where I wanted to go forward with this. But I think as a result, I actually went above the call of duty, as it were, conducted well over three times the expected number of research articles. I conducted well over three times the expected number of case studies in this kind of study to help limit the bias that I could have brought to the data. But however, on another note, as feedback was being shared in the semi-structured interviews and uh, as codes arose in this uh, thematic analysis, I could see how it really tied in with a lot that I had seen in trying to survive and work through a lot of that. And even as I was trying to unpack some of the information with our candidates, our participants, as I shared with them that, look, I too have gone through this. And, and so whatever you share with me, just know that this is something that I want to continue to build on and, and working on your feedback. Well, the data was so rich. So I think I would hazard a guess that, you know, the, the kind of data that did come back was, was so valuable, so rich, and so deep that I think I'm still going to be unpacking this probably a year later from now. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, I want to thank you so much for 
taking the time. We're having this conversation, uh, you know, a little bit late after a very busy day for you with, with work and other commitments. And, you know, and, and so I really appreciate and, and, and I also want to thank you more importantly for the, for the contribution that you may have made through this, this research. I know it's already starting to have implications and, and I, I, I think it's a crucial um, piece of research for this province. And so I, I, Thank you very, very much for taking the time and, and the commitment that you've shown to it and for sharing it with us today. Not only is it a pleasure, but like I said, it, it, I feel like it's part of part of my duty in being a part of this. And so I hope that, you know, as I move forward and continuing to build on this, I hope that it'll be an inspiration to educators, to practitioners, to child welfare workers, to government. This research actually has led me to become part of the Canadian Child Welfare Pack, which is to actually increase social mobility uh, with post-secondary partners in Canada for current and former foster kids. We know that the barrier of finances are significant. And so um, the pack has now helped create over 210 tuition-free places at 15 schools in five provinces for current and former foster youth in care. And this month alone, Wilfrid Laurier uh, University and Seneca College have just announced their plans to join the list of schools providing this support. And our end goal is similar opportunities at all post-secondary schools, coast to coast. Keep up the amazing stuff that you do, Sean. I look forward to our next conversation because uh, I always enjoy talking with you. Every time we've had a conversation, I, I learn something new. So thank you very much. Definitely. You're an, you're an inspiration, Wolfgang. I appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Bye for now.